You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. One of the top three most read New Yorker stories of last year was Ronan Farrow's investigation of Elon Musk. The story, titled Elon Musk's Shadow Rule, was about how the U.S. government came to rely on the tech billionaire and how it's now struggling to rein him in. With Tesla, Musk is deciding the future of the auto industry. With SpaceX, the future of the space race and the geopolitics that go with it. And with Twitter, now known as X, he's influencing the future of free speech. Ronan joined me in August to discuss his reporting on Musk. And today we're revisiting that conversation. Hi, Ronan. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So since your first article for The New Yorker, which was about Harvey Weinstein, you've been reporting on abuses of power. What drew you to Elon Musk specifically? I think that ultimately the thing with Elon Musk is he's perhaps the most overexposed person in the world. And it's actually quite challenging to find much that's truly new to say about him as an individual. I mean, there are colorful anecdotes, obviously, in this reporting. There's the fact that he was in consultations with Vladimir Putin that he subsequently denied in the midst of the Ukraine conflict. There's, you know, the questions about his psychopharmacology, which have been out there in the press. And I talked to people who who speak about his ketamine use in this piece. But, you know, this is ultimately all incremental. And what I found was most new and urgent in this was not even really about Elon as much as it's about the systems around him, right? For what it's worth, I myself feel like if there's a, a villain in the piece, it's late stage capitalism. <laughs> you know, it's it's these vast economic systems and political trend lines that have led to a situation where a single mega billionaire of this type can fill the spaces that are going fallow at the hands of the state. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that I was trying to figure out while reading your piece which was just incredible, by the way, um, so deeply reported and, and fascinating, was just, I mean, obviously Elon Musk poses a problem because he is both incredibly powerful and also quite erratic. Mm-hmm. But is it that combination that is so dangerous or is it actually just an issue that any one person has this power, you know, regardless of what their politics might be or, you know, the kind of decisions that they make? Like, is it just, does he bother us because he's Elon Musk or is, it, is the issue that he's kind of a one-man monopoly? Well, I think both things are true. Elon Musk is a singular challenge in this context, right? Because in recent years, especially, we've seen this kind of erraticism from him. There have been these questions about his stability, and we've actively seen his propensity to embrace misinformation and political views that aren't always aligned with American interests, right? Like in this case of the consultations with the Kremlin, that's a a serious issue in the eyes of national defense uh, officials. At the same time, while I think scrutinizing Elon Musk's turn towards extremism and volatility is worthwhile in some ways, the bigger point is the other one you mentioned, that Any single person with this concentration of power, any example of hyper wealth eclipsing the normal checks and balances should be 
I think, a subject of, of concern. What do we do about a, a world where you can have a single person who becomes the arbiter of a war in this way, who becomes the only way the United States government can get astronauts launched from American soil into orbit, you know, without relying on Russian launches, who becomes an unavoidable component of any green energy plan because he controls 60% of the charging stations for electric vehicles in this country. How, what you do about the systems that lead to that, that's a, that's a tougher question. And that really has to do with like the fundamental political economic direction of the country. So you mentioned some of the sectors that Musk has, you know, an insane amount of control over. I'm wondering which of these seems the most problematic to you. I mean, your piece opens with the war in Ukraine and Musk's role in that. Was that sort of like a standout example for you? Or do you think that, you know, sort of what's happening with um, Tesla and green energy is maybe going to end up having longer term stakes? And then also that his acquisition of Twitter. And I almost the, forgot about Twitter. There are so many things. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I think there's probably a decent uh, contingent out there that wishes they could forget about <laughs> what's happened with Twitter of late. I think it's more instructive to look at the lessons out of the Twitter conflagration about his descent into a new and unpredictable kind of politics. So that's why that component of this piece isn't just another article, which we've seen many of, about, you know, the chaos as he took over. Instead, I, I think it's just an opportunity to learn a little bit about what's happening to the guy right now and over the last few years. He told Kara Swisher a few years ago that he viewed himself as a centrist and, like, socially probably more liberal. He donated to Hillary, right, he, he and voted he against Trump? To Hillary, right. All of which is, you know, a very, very far cry from his politics today. And it's interesting to look at the factors that seem to have led up to that. This kind of extreme wealth and power and fame, right, because he also has become this super exposed pop culture figure, would isolate anyone. You know, I, I in my own tiny way, f feel like it's been a big challenge in my life to try to stay grounded and like maintain good judgment as a lot of noise and public attention swirls around you. And he's dealing with all of that uh, on a much vaster scale, not only prominent, but also in control of so many things. And, you know, surrounded by mostly people who are not going to raise questions or create accountability. And he's talked openly about his sadness and his loneliness. Um, and, and that connects up with these questions about his choices of medications and drugs and the Tesla board being concerned about his ambient use and the ketamine stuff. He is human and complicated. And I'm not saying it's unfair when people walk away from that section on the way in which all of these factors have, have radicalized him in recent years and, and say, hey, this is this is someone that I, I want to condemn, right? Like some of those views may elicit that reaction and I, I'm not taking issue with that. I, I just think at the same time, the important point here is this is what happens when you put a human being in this kind of a situation. So, so that's, that's really how I, how I tried to come at the politics section about the last few years and the way in which the Twitter acquisition and what he's done with the platform fits into that. 
I'm wondering if we can get more specific about the way in which Musk's persona has kind of evolved over the years, because it seems like, you know, The New Yorker published a profile of him in 2009, Mm. and it really emphasized his awkwardness and the way in which he just was almost uniquely uncharismatic. It it almost reminded me of the way that we talk about DeSantis now. Mm. But it seems like now he's a lot more Trumpy just in the way that he is, um, you know, kind of trolling people on the Internet. It seems like your theory is that this is basically him responding to, like, the public discourse surrounding him a little bit, like, or has, like, the power gone to his head? Like, what is going on there? Because it seems like Elon Musk in 2009 is just so different from Elon Musk in 2023. So different. Yeah, and that that was a Tad Friend piece in The New Yorker uh, and and reflects the tenor of the coverage of him at the time, right, where people were very excited by this visionary risk-taking that runs through the origin stories of so many of his businesses by the undeniable fact, which remains to this day, that he has pushed forward progress in a number of fields in a pretty meaningful way, right? He shook loose inactivity in the space race. He pushed forward at a a much faster pace than was otherwise happening, the electric car market. It's very understandable that he was a media darling in in the wake of that. I think that the fact that the coverage has curdled is a significant component of his retreat into more isolation and more political extremism. There's a contrast, which a lot of his friends that I talked to spoke of, where now when he does something, what he sees anyway as the liberal press, the mainstream press, jumps all over him and criticizes him. And at the same time, you have this alt-right press Right. He does podcasts with kind of Trumpy, uh, like fratty you know, pranksters and stuff. Um, that's the, the place that Elon these days likes to answer questions. You know, essentially, he feels liberals are being mean to him. And there's this other set that is willing to greet him as a hero and gas him up a lot more. And and this manifests not just in his relationship with the media, but also in his political relationships, right? He wasn't invited to uh, a summit for you know, electric car makers at the White House. And friends told me he was really wounded by that. He literally tweeted, and we quote this in the piece, you know, I've gotten a cold shoulder from the Biden administration. So I think that the confluence of the tenor of the media coverage And then also the fact that as he got more extreme, he became more persona non grata in political circles. The criticism gets more uh, pointed uh, from, again, what he perceives to be the left. That's created a cycle of, you know, a person who is by his own admission quite isolated under a tremendous amount of stress, dealing with the rigors of fame and in a situation where there's no one to question him as he sort of pulls farther and farther from mainstream discourse. It's interesting that you mention, you know, him feeling like he got a cold shoulder from the Biden administration, because it also seems like in your piece that there are, you know, many examples of the Biden administration kind of facilitating his power grabs in a way. You know, I think one example, and you can probably describe it better than I can, um, you know, it seemed like his electric cars were going to have to adhere to a certain standard that the Biden administration was setting. And then basically he complained, right? And then they kind of let him do his own thing. This is about charging technologies, you know, Mm -hmm. what kind of a charging plug that you use for your electric car, essentially. And Tesla got there first, built all of this charging infrastructure, 
and also uh, created a proprietary standard that is, you know, unique to Tesla. Now, now it's going to be shared with other competitors. He's in a very canny way brokered uh, an alliance with the other electric car makers, and they're going to start using the Tesla technology too. But it's his his charger, his uh, standard of of plug. And the Biden administration felt very strongly initially about pushing a universal standard that wasn't made by by one company, uh, you know, and that everyone would have free access to. Now, that's all very well and good, but this is also a case where it seems like the Tesla technology is better, you know? Like, he says he likes it better, and he doesn't want it to switch over to a universal standard. And from the technical folks I've talked to, he's he's right. I think it's a better technology from everything I understand. So, you know, he, as is so often the case, represents a, a bulwark against government inaction or uh, the slow pace of technological progress under government leadership. At the same time, it's you know another situation that's played into his hand and his unrestrained power, because now it's a situation where, you know, the Biden administration is going to give him access to billions of dollars in, in grants if he, you know, as a compromise measure, just makes his Tesla stations also compatible with the universal standard. So the idea is, okay, well, we, you know, we got to work with him, right? He's an unavoidable part of this landscape. Let's just try to graft the other standard that we wanted onto, onto the Tesla infrastructure. But it's just, it's a very small encapsulation of how unavoidable he is in multiple policy areas for usually better and worse. Yeah. Is it also an example of him just being a good businessman? Yeah, for sure. In the piece, you write that um, basically Musk sort of sought out these business opportunities in areas where the state has receded, which is something that enabled him to amass so much power. Was this like actively his business strategy or is it just a coincidence almost? You know, SpaceX, for example, there weren't really NASA launches anymore. You know, he was able to innovate in that space. But did he know that SpaceX would lead to working with you know, alongside NASA on space missions? Like, do you think that it was always kind of his goal to replace the government in a way? Or do you think that just sort of happened as people became aware of his his talents and skills? Well, one one sentiment that's echoed over and over again in, in both quotes in the piece and in the wider conversations I had with people who have worked closely with Musk is that he wants to be the one to deliver the solution. There is this element of ego to it. And I I don't think that that is simple or uh, the whole story. I I think that Elon Musk is clearly and sincerely driven by the mission of saving humanity and advancing progress and making the world a better place. But again and again, both allies and enemies and people in his personal life and people in his work life talk about his controlling tendencies and him really feeling he has to be the one to do that. And I think the goal of supremacy comes up in a lot of these fields. You know, he, he when he talks about his recently launched AI company, XAI, frames it in competitive terms. It's like, I'm going to be the third player in this field. And that's a perfect embodiment of the balance that I'm talking about. You know, he is someone who I think genuinely has fears about the future of AI and the dangers of the technology. Didn't he, he fund OpenAI, though? 
He did. Uh, and he had a falling out with the OpenAI folks and now spends a lot of time trashing OpenAI. Classic Musk fashion, I guess. <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. And I think there is a competitive saltiness, right, where he wants to reclaim his uh, dominance in that world as as all of big tech is now sort of reeling and talking about this new AI future that's going to change everything. Um, he he wants in on that. So so there's an both the aspect of sincere investment in the issues and sincere curiosity that we see when he talks about AI and his fears about it. Uh, this was articulated, uh, amongst other places, in a group letter that he signed on to from tech leaders saying, you know, this is dangerous tech and calling for a, a pause in the development of certain levels of advanced uh, AI. And, um, you know, perfect uh, illustration, while that pause was playing out, he was secretly building his new AI company, right? So this is someone who who both sincerely cares. I don't doubt that he espoused uh, those views and and had those fears that are in that letter, but but who also, you know, really hates the competition and really feels it's got to be him. He's got to be the the savior. And Reed Hoffman, who was also involved in those OpenAI days, is on the record in this piece saying. You know, particularly in this new field, we should be concerned about who the leaders are and what their balance of altruism and personal ambition might be, because we're creating AI in our own image. And we've already seen out there in the world how quickly early chatbot technologies became racist and sexist, right? And so it makes sense that he is a particular subject of concern for people in this particular field where the end results may well in some ways reflect the people with a, a hand at the tiller in these early days. We'll have more with Ronan Farrow on Elon Musk on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute. So I'm interested in the kinds of things that have been um, driving Musk's worldview. Um, in your piece, you talk about his love of sci-fi. Do you think that he's trying to build a world that is kind of like that of the books that he read when he was younger? I guess, how do you connect sort of his like childhood interests with his you know current business strategies? Well, some of it is really straightforward, like Asimov's Foundation series, which is about a society grappling with the implications of accurately predicting when that society is going to end. And he's talked about that a lot in the context of his mission to, you know, get humanity off of this earth and to Mars. Then there are these examples where his attachment to the work and the reading he seems to pull from the work is almost ironic on some <laughs> level. Like he loves Douglas Adams and, you know, I love Douglas Adams. Uh, he and I conclude very different things about Douglas Adams' worldview, right? Adams was very anti-wealth. There's a lot of satirical depictions of hyper-wealth in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that show us what a firebrand Douglas Adams was and how anti-establishment he was and how anti-corporate and, and really, like, anti-capitalist he was. You know, you you have... And these descriptions of like rich assholes 
uh, smuggling exotic parakeets to use them as cocktail garnishes, even though they taste disgusting, but they're status symbols. <laughs> There's like, this stuff is all over the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You have the Earth literally getting bulldozed to, to make way for like a, a space transit route. And the way uh, Elon Musk talks about uh, Douglas Adams and his work is much more just like, what a cool future Douglas Adams portrayed, you know? <laughs> like, he's not very similar to like the mild-mannered protagonist of that series he he's much more in line with um you know zaphod beeblebrocks is the like sort of anti-hero playboy narcissist character who briefly becomes the the president of the galaxy (laughs) um (laughs) similarly you know he he loves deus ex the video game and it's also one of my favorite games i mean he has he has great taste (laughs) in in like genre material Deus Ex is a really like sophisticated cerebral game to pick as your favorite game. And when I say favorite game, I mean he's like made his Twitter profile at the time uh before it was called X. Uh you know, the protagonist of that series, he posted a picture of his bedside table with a replica gun from that series. Uh so he really he cares a lot, but it's another situation where it's in this tradition of anti-establishment, anti-capitalist sci-fi. Like, cyberpunk is really full of those themes. And Deus Ex is this dystopian depiction of a hyper-corporatized future, you know, where the villain is a multidisciplinary tech mogul genius who, like, launches rockets and is on the cover of business magazines and is the richest man in the world. And <laughs> you Sounds see where familiar. this is going. Yeah. Right. So, so like, there, there was a lot of discourse around him changing his uh, profile to the, the hero of this series where people kind of noted the irony, right? Like, he is, if you read descriptions of this villain in, in the original Deus Ex, Bob Page, like, it, it predicts the rise of Elon Musk. It's a game about um, a, a world where we've given too much power to corporations and to hyper hyper wealthy moguls, and and so it's a little it's a little peculiar, right, to have him be so attached to that fiction and and not get that it's kind of skewering the very thing that he so embodies, and and he he manages to pull other things from it, like when he made his avatar that character. He also was tweeting about alluding to the fact that that the first game's plot is about a a manufactured plague to control the masses. And so he was taking out of it what he wanted to at the time, which is like he's in a COVID denial phase. Mm -hmm. But there's a real uh, lack of scrutiny about the about the deeper themes. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. And God bless The New Yorker for letting me put protracted descriptions of the plots of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Deus Ex (laughs) in this profile. I hope I made it relatively accessible. You did. I honestly feel like they're the key to kind of understanding Musk. I I think they are too. And, um, you know, I think he does view himself as something of an end times savior. Yeah, there's definitely this, um, at least in the discourse, this sort of like altruistic streak. And I'm curious, I mean, what... What happens when, like, the public interest and his own business interests are at odds? Like, which one usually wins out? Well, we've seen that tension play out in the Ukraine anecdote. That's one reason why I included it. Shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, the Ukrainians 
in Silicon Valley in communication with Ukrainians on the ground who were dealing with Russian bombardment, including of their digital infrastructure, came up with the idea of, okay, we're going to need internet access for all manner of activities, right? For civilian activities, for hospitals, but also for organizing troops. And we're going to need a system that can withstand this onslaught. And Elon Musk, through SpaceX, has a, a technology called Starlink. They're, they're mobile satellite systems. Um, you just point it at the sky and they connect to Musk's satellites and you get internet access. And each one is a self-sufficient unit. So you would need a network of them across the country. But it meant that you know Russia couldn't take out their internet access with one attack. And over the ensuing months, Elon Musk enthusiastically supported the effort to get a lot of Starlink units to Ukraine. And then as this technology became the backbone of Ukrainian infrastructure, including on the battlefield, started to signal a lot of misgivings, both about his technology being used for warfare in principle. This is how he often talks about it. And also it, it, seems, you know, according to the interpretation of people who have had conversations with him about this that are more frank, because of the the kind of pragmatic interests he has in the world. You know, he does a lot of business in China. He relies on their goodwill. China has backed Russia in the Ukraine conflict. He has said publicly that the Chinese have applied pressure to him and made known their displeasure with him giving these Starlink units and supporting the Ukrainian cause. And, you know, we know from the reporting in this piece, despite his denials, that he spoke to Vladimir Putin about the conflict. So you see a situation where his view turns towards something more pro-Russia. He tweets a peace plan that cedes the territory Russia wants in, in many cases and starts arguing that, you know, a lot of uh, Eastern Ukraine is more pro-Russia. And I, I think that kind of answers your question through an illustration, right? I think the answer is unpredictable. I think he has a mix of all of these incentives in the world, almost like a nation state, right? And and he is greeted and, and treated like a nation state in some ways. It looks very much like diplomacy. And foreign countries send delegations to court his business and get his factories to come to their countries. And he has to balance a lot of equities and think about the places his businesses need to operate and the governments he needs to keep happy. Yeah, I guess I guess it's just like he has a net worth of $217 billion, right? And so it seems like he could afford to, um, you know, piss a couple nations off, you know, by helping the Ukrainians. Well, and I think the example shows that he's certainly willing to piss off the United States government. Yeah. And you're making a fair point, right, that he should maybe be even more an island and resistant to outside pressure. I think the the answer is complicated and somewhere in between. You know, no matter how much money he has as the richest man in the world currently, he is ultimately somewhat beholden to needing to to operate factories in physical places with real populations of people, right? Um, you know, he had a, a big fight with California reg regulators when they did the COVID shutdowns. That's another story I talk about. Totally. And that clearly 
really got to him and, and infuriated him that he couldn't keep one of his most productive factories open. So there are these ways in which Elon Musk, despite all this power, still exists in the world, right? And I think the piece captures a moment where people are, in government especially, grappling with, okay, how do we use those levers to make sure this isn't totally a runaway train? Have you seen any good attempts from the U.S. government to use those levers? Or are there any ideas as to how to kind of rein them in a little bit? I think right now most of the stories point to the opposite, that yeah. the efforts to rein him in have had somewhat limited success. I mean, the Ukraine situation ended with the Pentagon doing a deal with him, apparently a very favorable one to him um, financially, where they made the Starlink situation in Ukraine a U.S. defense contract. Yeah. Now you look at an example like Elon Musk launching a rocket without FAA approval, which is another story that, that we tell in this piece. That's a case where they really didn't know what to do afterwards. And I talked to the FAA official who was in charge of this uh, decision and he made the argument, look, the guy's so rich, like a fine just doesn't hurt a company that he's running. You know, you can take or leave that argument, but they didn't find him afterwards. And this was a pretty stark case. Like the, the main point of contact at the FAA was telling him you do not have permission to launch. And then Elon was there on site and they launched. And, you know, they never concluded formally what happened or how culpable he was, but those are the facts. So that's what happened. And and there was no fine. Uh, they did ground SpaceX launches for a couple of months. You know, the, the regulators felt that would be the most frustrating thing to impose on a company that is so oriented around speed and iteration and innovation. But it's also, it's not that long a grounding period, you know? So, so all of that just goes to a, a problem that's much bigger and wider than Elon Musk, which is we don't do a lot of, corporate veil piercing in this country. We we don't really have great systems for holding giant corporations accountable. You know, mostly there is not an existential threat from any kind of regulatory penalty. And, you know, you have to then hunt for the rare exceptions, like is big tobacco uh, or big oil materially affected and incentivized by you know, activist class action suits where like the numbers get so big potentially that you can maybe see some some changes in the posture of a company. I think with Elon Musk's companies, people haven't come up with an answer yet. Yeah, it seems um it seems like the only thing that really gets to him or has gotten to him so far is um some of the the online discourse. Like I wonder what it would do to Elon Musk if he did indeed lose to um like Mark Zuckerberg in a cage match. Yeah. As has been discussed. Like not that that would provide any kind of like check and balance, but if that would um, you know, change the way in which he is um so beloved by the right and if it would just change his public image in a way. Yeah. He he is image conscious, you know? He he gets very worked up about, you know, sometimes picayune bits of discourse about him. He gets, you know, very kind of amped up and retaliatory at times in his relationships with some journalists, where you would think like a guy of his stature would maybe play it a little cooler. So what you say is true, that it's not like there's no way in. 
it's just sort of tricky to anticipate what's actually going to get through because of the degree of isolation that we talked about. You know, he is someone who erratically cares very profoundly about how he's perceived, but then also clearly has a lot of walls up and a lot of ability to not listen when he wants that. Well, thank you so much, Ronan. I I really appreciate it. It's a, a thoughtful conversation about a troubling, important set of dynamics. Ronan Farrow is an investigative reporter and a contributing writer to The New Yorker. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with editing from Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode to kick off another year of conversations with New Yorker writers and political experts. See you then.